0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
1: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson, and I'm Adam Kempinar. Why is there so much human suffering? This is unanswerable.
2: Is there a God? These are the wrong questions. Look, here's my point. If nothing lasts, why am I bothering to to make films or do anything for that
0: matter? We enjoy your films particularly the early funny
1: ones. Woody Allen dealing with some extraterrestrial critics in his 1980 film Stardust Memories, and to those hardworking actors and directors who wind up on our list of the year's biggest disappointments, well, we like your earlier stuff. 2013 Disappointments and Surprises is this week's Film
2: Spotting Top 5. We've also got a review of Out of the Furnace with Christian Bale and Woody Harrelson, and we'll name the five finalists for the 2013 Golden Brick Award. That and more.
1: I'm not on your list of biggest disappointments, am I, Josh?
2: Honorable mention.
1: Ahead on Film Spotting.
2: This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create
1: your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use offer code FILM12 and stay tuned later in the show when we announce the three winners of our recent Squarespace promotion. You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. Moon, Dogtooth, the arbor andrea arnold's weathering heights the four previous winners of the prestigious film spotting golden brick award we'll name the 2013 finalists for our overlook movie of the year later in the show plus the surprises and disappointments of the year in film but first how rough are the characters
2: in out of the furnace well willem defoe plays the ringleader of an underground bare-knuckle boxing ring and he's one of the nice guys
0: now why the hell you want to fight i just need the money. You going to be a good boy and take a dive. I'm gonna to have to teach you a lesson. Me! They haven't been able to find your brother. The people up in those hills. At their own breed of justice. And it does not include us. Mr. Grote is the worst. He haunts those mountains. Please don't do it. For me, you don't want to go there. We're going to get one shot at this guy. You ready for this.
1: Josh, you did such a masterful job last week working our poll question results in your old boy setup. I thought I'd go to that well this week. We asked listeners to pick the Out of the Furnace star they like best. Actually, the way we phrased it was, only one of these four stars can continue making movies. Who do you choose? The options, in order of biggest role to smallest, were Christian Bale, Bale plays Russell Bays. Russell works at the Steel Mill in his small western Pennsylvania town. Quiet, hardworking, goes to visit his dying father regularly. He's always looking out for his troubled brother. That's Casey Affleck. Your choice in the poll, Josh. He's Rodney Bays. Served four tours in Iraq, can't hold down a job, is into the local bookie played by Willem Dafoe for a lot of money, and he tries to pay it back by taking bare-knuckle fights. Woody Harrelson, my choice in the poll, is Harlan DeGroat a backwoods meth boss who puts on some bigger money fights that Rodney gets involved with. He might actually have more screen time than Affleck and might be the scariest character Harrelson has ever portrayed, which is saying something. Finally, there's Forrest Whitaker, the local sheriff who Bales Russell develops a personal conflict with involving his girlfriend, played by Zoe Saldana. On our last show, I correctly predicted that the two choices you were deciding between Josh, Whitaker and Affleck, would finish at the bottom, which is how it came out. Whitaker, in last place, 10%, Casey Affleck, Better at 21%, while Bale would beat out my guy Woody, which he did. Harrelson came in with 25% of the vote, but Christian Bale was there at the top with 44%. I rehash all of this not to illustrate just how amazingly perceptive I am when it comes to knowing our audience, or to belabor how bizarre your tastes well, are. Well, wait a minute. Okay, no. that's exactly why I did it. <laughs> you predicted Affleck would be in last place. No, I predicted all
2: four. That was I the I direction. I predicted all
1: four. Are you sure about that? I am positive. Actually, I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure I literally laid out the four picks. We'll go to the tape to review (laughs) it. I think we have to. I also did it to help pinpoint what element or elements perhaps resonated with you the most. Co-writer-director Scott Cooper's previous film, Crazy Heart, was a redemption tale about a drunk, washed-up country singer. Out of the Furnace strikes me as the opposite, an anti-redemption tale about bad choices leading to worse fates set appropriately, bleakly, in 2008 as the U.S. economy is tanking and soldiers like Rodney are shipping off to Iraq and Afghanistan. It's not big on plot. It's not big on spectacle. It is big on character. Did those characters and the actors playing them redeem the film for you?
2: I think all four of our poll options proved that they were deserving of being in that poll. I think there are four really strong performances here. And it's interesting because Affleck, yeah, my, my pick... It's another one of these performances that if you didn't already come to the film liking him a lot from seeing him in supporting parts before, you would say, as I've continually said, wow, that guy needs a really good starring role. Yeah, because I would still say that. Yeah, after yeah, you would, those. right. And But he's in a supporting part. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, he does what the part asks of him really well. Bale, solid in the way that he's always been solid, I feel. Um, actually, there's another film he's in, American Hustle, that won me over more to bail i've Don't been talking spoil it. a Haven't little bit i'm not, not going to get too much into it but i'll just say that's the performance where i finally got bail at the level that most other people have for a while here really mm. loved him in that even though here, he's got a wig and a gut exactly i thought that was the one i was going to kind of shy away from but uh we'll get to that at some point i'm sure Bale is really solid here and uh, whitaker as well solid as usual harrelson yeah he's He's terrifying in this part, though I do wonder, and maybe this is where we can start, do you think the opening scene, which is of Harrelson's character at a drive-in theater with a woman they're supposedly on a date, but it goes bad really quickly, pretty much sets up what a horrible person and violent person and unpredictable person he is. Did you get the sense that that was added later? Because it, it seems so separate in terms of what the main narrative is about, that... Almost as if they felt like we've really got to pump this guy up to build this legend so that he
1: hovers over the rest of the
2: film or maybe because the rest of the film wasn't strong enough. I I wondered
1: about that afterwards. Well, I don't know about strong enough, but I actually really liked that choice. And no, I felt like probably Scott Cooper had that in mind all along. I think that's exactly what he's doing is he's trying to not only introduce a sense of foreboding that obviously it foreshadows a lot of what is to come, but he does have that character hanging over now, based on that really harrowing first scene, hanging over everything that follows. So you know he's going to come back into play. And when he does appear on screen, because let's be honest, Woody Harrelson isn't an imposing figure mm-hmm. physically. But when you see an opening scene like that, you know the moment he walks on screen that he's trouble. You know what he's capable of, yeah. I think that really worked.
2: Hanging over the film is a good way to put it because there is a ton hanging over this picture. This is a very heavy picture in terms of mood, in terms of the characters are all very dour. And I found that to be a little bit overdone for a while, to mm-hmm. be honest with you. But I like what you said at the beginning, how this does turn into a movie about bad choices and a worse fate, because that made the movie for me in that it stayed true to that to the end. Because what this turns into, essentially, is a vigilante picture. It's a revenge picture. It's, it's similar to Old Boy, the film we recently discussed in sense of what the primary narrative is and what the char- the choices. let's say,
1: the character has to make. It doesn't actually fill up nearly as much screen time the revenge aspect though.
2: No, that's true. It does in the last third, I'd say it really turns into that and all of all the tension and all of our rooting interest becomes tied to this theme of revenge. And I really liked how the film played with that. And that's where the heaviness settled in for me. The movie stayed committed to that. So it's not cathartic in the way so many revenge pictures are. This is one of those rare revenge pictures that felt uh, just dark and shadowy right
1: down to its final moment. Yeah, I think that's a good point about how revenge often does provide catharsis. And that's why those movies are kind of dealing from both sides of the deck, right? Where you do often feel like they're they're judging revenge and they're saying these characters are making really bad moral choices. But they are at the same time often fueling that fire. And we as an audience are sort of getting off on that. And there's none of that pleasure Here whatsoever, and I don't think there is a cathartic moment that comes out of that. I would say that I think the cast probably is what mostly saved this movie for me, even though I'm probably stopping just short of recommending it. It did always hold my interest. I was invested in the characters, their lives, their arcs, but in the 24 hours since I've seen it, it really hasn't settled with me very well, and I think mainly it's because of, even though it may have been with the right tone that we wanted it to have based on everything that preceded it i thought the ending was unsatisfying i think there was a reach for poignancy with a misguided final shot by cooper that Mm, we can't really get into i think that using violence to reconcile everything even if it doesn't reconcile things neatly and is appropriate for the subject matter that didn't sit well with me and i do think there's some unnecessary vagueness on cooper's part at the end where he's doing what i love a good director to do he's not teeing it up for us he's not trying to be overly obvious but i do think in not spelling a couple things out he actually does leave the door open for too many interpretations that don't help the film ultimately. in that
2: final shot in particular in the final shot in particular? Yeah.
1: but but leading up to that in particular i'm thinking of the impact or non-impact that another character has at the mm. end of the film someone okay. who is watching yeah. the big violent scene play out i think there's some confusion there that really didn't need to be there see I like the
2: uneasiness of that element of not knowing what a character again because we've seen it go so many different ways before that I like that unpredictability but I'm with you on the final shot and actually when I was sitting in the theater watching the movie it was deeply unsatisfying it was almost distracting it almost took me out of what I had just appreciated a Mm -hmm. few seconds before because I, I thought where are we now in time in space exactly but the more I thought about it and I would agree The movie has not sat with me. I mean, we're seeing so many pictures this time of year, and it is one that will easily kind of drift by and not stick with me. But the more I did go back to it in preparing for the show, I like that final shot. If you see it more as symbolic, it's more of a a, a spiritual or a a psychological state than anything else. But you mentioned how some of those elements in the finale don't have a heavy hand. A lot of this film has a very, very heavy hand. Oh, yeah. I I was was going to get there. Parallel cutting sequences. (laughs) Parallel cutting. I'm sure we're thinking of the same one. We are. Now, let me start with one that I actually admired, and that's with an early bout that Casey Affleck's character is involved in while he's fighting and getting beaten up. Essentially, we see the Bale character restoring this home, the home that they grew up in is our impression. And he's chiseling some old paint off and and trying to paint it. And that was a nice pairing where you get restoring. hands in different ways. Yeah, exactly. You get deadening and restoring and and that worked well. But that later one, another bout where Affleck is again getting beaten up Mm -hmm. and Bale's on the deer hunt and it ends with the deer being skinned and Affleck bloody as well i mean that's that that sort of thing just does take me out of a movie
0: john you back here oh i'm sorry should i come back later or? no it's okay we're finishing up you know i teach you to barge in like that you got a problem with me i got a problem with everybody
1: You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new film, Out of the Furnace. It's co-written and directed by the writer-director of the movie starring Jeff Bridges from a few years ago, Crazy Heart. And as much as I'm ripping on the ending here a little bit, I think Cooper did pave the way with some other decisions. And you've touched on a few of them here, and I'll touch on them a little bit more, that set me up for that feeling of dissatisfaction at the end. And it is that metaphorical heavy-handedness cribbing directly from... The deer hunter. I mean, really, it's the deer hunter that we get in this cross-cutting sequence between Bale and Affleck during a crucial time. And I'll interject here real quick, as long as we're talking about cribbing from movies, the end scene that you talked about, that end shot, I had to watch the last half of this film. Don't ask me why. I'm not going to get into it. But I had to watch it on my laptop. I had a screener of it. I didn't see it in the theater, which I believe you did. Yeah, I did. So that last shot in particular, it's kind of murky. It's dark, especially when you're watching it on a laptop. And I wasn't even completely sure which character I was looking at. I thought it might have been oh, okay. another character from It's a from pretty the beautiful shot if, if you have the right Okay, venue. well, yeah. I didn't get that from the way I was viewing it. And so I was really confused by that last shot, even more than you were saying. What's the timing of it? I right. thought, are we going to some kind of fantasy moment here? I didn't know anything. So I got out my computer. I Googled last shot of Out of the Furnace, thinking, surely someone has explained this and I could get a description of what's happening. Well... I found the director explaining it exactly, and it turns out that that last shot is meant as a blatant homage to a very, very famous film. Okay. And it's one of those examples, I would say, where when you hear him say that, you go, oh, yeah, of course, that's exactly what he's doing, and I do think it was a misstep to just try to to call on that reference and hope the audience would get it in that moment. I think he probably could have come up with something a little more inspired, but in addition to that cross-cutting you talked about, he does go... I'm sorry, Josh, Fruitvale Station on us as well, and he tries to heighten the drama by interjecting some irony. There's a key part where Christian Bale is reading a letter from his brother about how he's turning over a new leaf when we, the audience, know how things are going to turn out for him. His brother doesn't. But that that interjection, that irony felt really false to me and unnecessary. Well, the problem there is, is not that it has anything to do with Fruitvale Station. I don't no, quite see of that. of course it doesn't. But
2: the, the problem is that, that Affleck character mistakes. would never have written that letter. No, he wouldn't. That's exactly <laughs> That's what, what I, I thought right away yeah. is, who's, who's writing this? Because everything we've been shown about the Affleck character is not someone who would sit down and spell things out. Like, I mean, a lot of their, what I liked about their relationship. That was a
1: moment where it didn't feel true exactly. to their relationship and that character. Totally. Because
2: because Affleck and Bale are so good early on as these brothers who communicate. Th- this is how they communicate, by punching each other or you know fake punching or revving their car engines. I like that little touch where they say maybe five to ten words to each other in a conversation. But then when they both leave, they kind of do these paired revving of their car engines. And you figure that as much as being communicated there between them as anything else. So So they spend a lot of time on this
1: relationship and the letter moment is not true to that at all. It isn't. But I do think that what you're touching on there with the way they communicate, the way all these characters communicate, that gets back to the performances as well. It's there in the writing. It's there in the direction. But the way they communicate with each other is what did hold my interest throughout this entire movie because I believe at one point Casey Affleck gets very loud. There's a scene where he gets right up in Christian Bale's face and really expresses himself. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, maybe the only moment in the entire movie where a character raises his voice. Mm. And it sort of makes sense because he is the misfit, of course. He's the character who doesn't really make sense in this world and feels like a misfit. All of these characters, and we should add Sam Shepard is in here as well, and he's you know, one of the all-time great grizzled screen actors. These are characters who just don't get worked up about really anything in life. They do their jobs. They take care of their families. They take it all very seriously. They laugh when they can. When they have those moments, mainly with their families, but there's conviction in everything they do. And you really see that in Bale's performance. It's a really understated, powerful Christian Bale performance, I think. And you said it, Woody Harrelson, he's intense, he's scary. I mean, terrifying really is the word. Though he's maybe nothing more. I think I've seen more from Woody Harrelson. I've seen more nuance. I've seen more shades to characters. Maybe that's not what Scott Cooper wanted from him here. He just wanted him to be that intimidating presence. And he certainly got that. I think Casey Affleck, as you said, is very solid. I wish I'd gotten even more from him. And Forrest Whitaker, he's in the movie the least amount of time. I love his first scene. There's a scene down at the sheriff's office between Bale yeah, and him. Yeah, that's really good. And there are two other characters, Sam Shepard and another guy who's a, a character actor you've seen in a lot of movies. And he's really good in that scene. Both of them, the way they play off each other and the dynamic comes out really in, in a lot of subtle ways is great. Is it just me, though? Every other time Whitaker appeared on screen, it's like he... Tried to put on some affectation to his voice. He's doing something he got, weird with his yeah, voice. Yeah, he got more guttural. Yes. and he got more low. They all are. They it's, are. It's a
2: very but low I growling it. group. And yeah. I, I don't know why that was. It was, it, was, never it was a distracting group decision.
1: Though. Oh, that was the first time for me. It was distracting. Was Forrest Whitaker basically every scene after that first performance? So I don't know if there was some kind of change made or maybe my ears just got more sensitive. But he actually did start to distract me mm-hmm. every time he opened his mouth. Unfortunately, and I love Forrest Whitaker. I think he's he's a really good actor, but. I'll give Scott Cooper a lot of praise for this. I liked how he used the camera to evoke mood and to frame these characters and their environment. These are idyllic scenes in a lot of cases, this environment. It's also grimy at times. The backwoods are very scary. But, you know, the Appalachian Mountains and these trees and the hills, I've driven through there. And... You want to stop and take a picture and you get those instances with the way the camera frames those sequences. I was thinking in particular about a scene where Saldana and Bale have a conversation, a really emotional moment on a bridge. And I'd love to go back and break that sequence down because if you look at kind of the lenses he's using and just the way the character is framed and the depth of it. It's powerful. It it really does. That's a really strong scene. It makes him feel really small and him kind of very vulnerable at the end of that scene. And it's all about the way the, the camera is framing that and also some of the editing. And the fact is, going back to Crazy Heart, the things that stood out in that movie for me were some of the writing, definitely the performance of Jeff Bridges, and the music, which I did really like. I didn't ever really... Think about the camera, or think about the visuals making an impact. I think the visuals here do make an impact. It makes me think that as a second-time filmmaker, he's, he's trying to add some more elements to his repertoire, and that is great to see. I also appreciated that the movie isn't Winter's Bone. It's not really at all about meth heads and mountain politics. It's not about Bale having to dive into that world and solve some kind of mystery. In fact, Cooper says, here's the mystery. I've solved it for you. I'm showing you Exactly what happens to all these characters. Some other characters may not know, but we do. And you're just going to follow along as those characters eventually discover what really happened. So based on the trailer, I thought that's what it was going to be. And I like that he didn't do that. So aside from some of those attempts to raise the stakes that we talked about, I think Cooper largely just lets these lives play out and he doesn't moralize. We talked about the setting here in 2008, obviously very deliberate, but I don't recall any grand speeches about the American dream. No, I think that's handled nicely. The American dream dying. There's it's no right grand in front speeches. Of you. you. Yeah, don't about need the to, war. They don't need to talk about it. You get a couple lines from Casey Affleck. they don't talk about it. It's a quiet group, no, like you it, were saying. It's a quiet group, so they say all they need to say, and we get all we need
2: from those interactions. There's a quietness to that bridge scene, which I'm glad you pointed out, because I think it's one of the strongest in the movie, not only for its visual elements— but for the performances there, I mean, Saldana and Bale. Let's just say the relationship between them has has changed dramatically at that point, and and what they both recognize, and it goes back to this demeanor that all the characters have, where it's stoicism probably isn't the right word, but they're they're not loudly proclaiming what they're feeling, but they're being true to their feelings at the same time. And the two of them just recognize what they've lost together Mm -hmm. in a really affecting way. And just one more note about the camera work. I think that opening scene, which I was wondering about at the beginning with Harrelson, there is some pretty amazing parallel camera movements going with the action on the drive-in movie screen Agreed. so that you have someone, I believe, yeah, they're coming up an escalator on the movie screen as the camera is slowly lowering down onto Harrelson's car. I mean, that that sequence was, was
1: really a thing of beauty in yeah. a lot of ways. And so. it also felt eerily like they were deliberately maybe on a stage or something. There was something very artificial about Mm. the world, which I don't completely understand what he was going for there, but right away it does draw you in and really makes you pay attention. There's no doubt that Cooper was playing a lot with that matching of action. Sometimes I felt like he overdid it a little bit where you would go from a cut of a character pouring something and then the next shot would be another Mm, character doing something just like it. I liked it in that opening, though. Yeah, the opening, I agree with you, is pretty fantastic. Out of the Furnace is currently out in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744 or find us on Twitter at filmspotting and over at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Massacre Theater is up next, along with our list of
2: the finalists for the film-spotting Golden Brick, an award that has more to do with Ryan Johnson than the Yellow Brick Road. We'll explain next. Stay with us.
0: well on the train Last night But had to trade my coat on. It's so cold here And just like a North, it's I know.
2: Brief interruption here, everyone, to remind you that this episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off,
1: go to squarespace.com and use offer code FILM12. One of the things we've loved to do over the past few years here with Squarespace on board as a sponsor is share listener sites with the rest of our listeners, maybe some websites you can check out. Never know, maybe use or just draw inspiration from. And these are sites that are all built with the Squarespace platform. We want to thank our listeners the past couple weeks for tweeting a link to your new or existing Squarespace website with the hashtag FilmSquarespace. And three of those Squarespace sites were chosen randomly to receive three months free to their Squarespace subscription and get a Squarespace t-shirt. We want to congratulate our giveaway recipients, Michael Sakowitz. That's what I'm going to say, Josh. I'm going with Sikowitz. Looks right. I hope I'm close. His website is that's zomb.com. That's com. Olivia Nodder, her website, Olivia N O T T R.com. And finally, I know Fernando's been a longtime listener, Fernando Martinez, and his website is Fernando Martinez Film. Squarespace is incredibly easy to
2: use, but if you do want some help, they have an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day and seven days a week. It starts at just $8 a month, and that includes a free domain name if you sign up for one year. Every design on Squarespace automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website. So your content is going to look great on every device, every time.
1: And we will link to those three listener sites, the three winners there, if you want to check them out in the show notes at filmspotting.net.
2: You can start a trial on Squarespace without a credit card. You just begin building your website. And if you do decide to sign up, make sure to use the offer code film12 to get 10% off and to show your support for film spotting. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website.
0: Okay, what do we want to play for rec today? Whiffle ball, dude. Okay. Oh, man. We're always playing that stupid game. Because you can always suck at it
1: until you get good at it. Maybe we can
0: stop playing it. Watch your mouth, bro. Both of you, cut it out. Any other suggestions? (coughs) Yes, Sammy? Can we play big and small? Is that a real game or is that a game you just made up? It's a real game that I just made up. (laughs) Okay, well maybe you can explain that to me later.
1: Welcome back to Film Spotting. That's Brie Larson as foster care supervisor Grace in Short Term 12, one of five finalists for this year's Film spotting Golden Brick Award. We'll get to more about the Golden Brick and the other finalists in just a bit. I do have two notes, Josh, I want to share right off the top, especially here for our Chicago-based listeners. We are giving away some free passes to see an advanced screening of the much-acclaimed play and probably much-acclaimed film, at least with that cast, August Osage County. It is opening here in Chicago on December 25th, but on Tuesday, December 17th, there is an advance free screening. We have passes for that. You can enter now by going to filmspotting.net. It's right there in the top stories section. And also there in the top stories, we are promoting the Film Spotting Rap Party. That's right, a it's 2013 official. 2013 Rap Party that is happening January 11th at Mainstage. You can get tickets again at filmspotting.net or mainstage.com. That's M-A-Y-N-E. This is our second End of year show. We did it last year with Michael Phillips. He'll be back this year. I have secured Michael. Abraham Levitan, who provided the music last time, he was great. He's going to provide some musical interludes this year as well. And we're going to reflect on 2013, which we're going to do later in the show as well. I'm expecting it to be a fun time and we hope to see many of you there at this point. That is less than a month away, just under a month away. So thanks, yeah. thanks for <laughs> reminding me of nervous. That. Let's
2: get to massacre theater. We perform a scene. You get a chance at winning a prize. Last time, Adam and I massacred this scene.
0: Let me explain you. When I was in prison, second time, uh, no, tell a lie. Third stretch, yeah, third, third. There was this screw. What really had it in for me, and that geezer was top of my list. Two years after I got sprung, I seized him in Olle Park. He's sitting on a bench feeding bloody pigeons. There was no one about. I could have gone up behind him and snapped his f***ing neck. Wallop. But I left him. I could have nodded him, but I didn't. Because what I thought I wanted wasn't what I wanted. What I thought I was thinking about was something else. I didn't give a toss. It didn't matter, see? This bird on the bench wasn't worth my time. It meant sod all in the end. Because you've got to make a choice. When to do something and when to let it go. When it matters and when it don't. Bide your time. That's what prison teaches you, if nothing else. Bide your time and everything becomes clear and you can act accordingly. There's one thing I don't understand. The thing I don't understand is every mother
2: word you're saying. That was Bill Duke as the head DEA agent and Terrence Stamp as Wilson in the Limey from 1999, written by Lem Dobbs and directed by Steven Soderbergh.
1: Jonathan Anderson asks... Josh, did you black out midway through that monologue and just let the character take over? That was intense.
2: (laughs) You know what happened? It it was sort of like it was a long monologue. Yes, it was. To begin with. And it was a little bit like riding a bucking bronco. It was rough at the start. But I feel like I hit my groove there about midway. And then it just went
1: all wrong. I got thrown. Yeah, I was going to say, is hitting your groove being totally unintelligible? No, no. Oh, okay. That's where you lost it? There's like one line in there that I'm dead on. One line out of 57 lines, but you did nail (laughs) one of them, Josh. There were a lot of people who did write in thinking that you were massacring Bronson, the film starring Tom Hardy from a few years ago. He he has his own idiosyncratic (laughs) way of thinking, but no, it was the Limey. Jefferson Hyde in Seattle, who is always up for taking a stab at the tie-ins here and coming up with some funny comments for Massacre Theater. He says, Josh Larson really took me back to the bayou. I I easily equated his performance with some of cinema's best incomprehensible Cajuns, such as The Waterboy's Blake Clark, (laughs) until I realized he was doing the limey. The obvious connection is that both the limey and old boy are about recently released prisoners and revenge, of course. But while we might not know where old boy's Joe was interred, it's crystal clear that Josh's limey did his time in the Kevin Costner penitentiary for butchers of foreign accents. Oh. In fact, Josh's performance was so powerful that upon the conclusion of Masquerade Theater, I had to immediately watch A Cry in the Dark just to equalize the dialectic scales. Well done. <laughs> Jefferson continues, congratulations on the first triple spit take show
2: I can recall. The first was the direction from Corky St. Clair comments. That was inspired, Josh. Well done. (laughs) Thank you. The second was Adam, admitting he'd never heard of Big Star until 2013, which wouldn't be a surprise, except that Adam is a rock musician. Well, I have no excuse. (laughs) Okay. The third was when Adam admitted he'd never seen a Johnny Toe movie until 2013. My first exposure to Johnny Toe was Full-Time Killer back in 2001, which nearly made me go misty during the closing credits when it listed Stuntman in the Stuntman's name. And that was the sole credit for stunts. One Stuntman for a Johnny Toe film? The circle would be completed in 2004 during the closing credits for Adam Sandler's Spanglish, which had upwards of 20 stunt people. To this day, my cinematic universe still feels wonky because of this 20 to 1 Spanglish full-time
1: killer stunt person ratio. (laughs) I would love to get the explanation behind that. What were those 20 stunt people doing in Spanglish? I cannot recall. I don't no. recall many car chases, many <laughs> fist fights. No, no. A lot of arguments with Taya Leone and Adam Sandler, but that's about it. If you do want to hear Josh's amazing rendition of that scene as Wilson from the Limey, plus our review of Old Boy and our top five film spotting discoveries of the year, you can get that show at filmspotting.net and via iTunes. This was the first show, Josh, that we reinstalled the prize of film spotting t-shirts, t-shirts yeah. and t-shirts you're going to reach into the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. The first winner of the new film spotting t shirts, Peter Ryan from Somerville, Massachusetts. Congratulations, Peter. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your film spotting shirt.
0: Dracula requires presence. It, it's all in the eyes and the voice and the head. And the... That's right. That's right. You seem a little agitated. You want to go outside and get some air? I'm ready now. Roll the camera.
1: Well, I've got the bigger scene this week in Massacre Theater. I'm not going to come anywhere close to matching what you pulled off last week, Josh. I don't know. Maybe that's a good thing, actually. It's
2: a, a long soliloquy yourself. Let's see how I you do. hold up.
1: Well, You're going to get a taste now. You are indeed. The listeners are going to have to put up with my stab at this monologue. And, Josh, there is a tie-in to this week's show, but we're not going to explain what it is because that would spoil the fun here. So I'm going to start it off. You're going to give me the action. Are you ready? All right. And Action. Mr. Rabbit says the moment of realization the moment of realization is worth a thousand prayers. You're crazy, mate. I don't think I'm any crazier than you are. I'm extremes, dark and light. You know that? I'm light with Justine. 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 That's your shadow on the wall, you know. You can't get rid of your shadow, can you? Now, You know, the only thing that kills a demon? Love. That's why I know Justine's my salvation. She was teaching me how to love. Yeah, it was just like being in the Garden of Eden. Only love can kill the demon. Hold that thought. And... And (laughs) scene have you ever talked that slowly on the show before no i've never talked that slowly in my entire life josh that was kind of fun i should try it Film more often episodes would be four and a half hours long if you talked that slowly so josh do we need to spell out that, that was basically your your melbourne accent I don't know if you want to give clues away. I did give a clue there. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, December 16th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on
2: next week's show. To get official massacre theater rules, visit filmspotting.net.
0: You ain't seen nothing yet. Raised lettering. Pale nimbus. White. Impressive. Very nice. Mm. Let's see Paul Allen's card. Look at that subtle off-white coloring. A tasteful thickness of it. Oh my God. It even has a watermark.
1: We go back to Christian Bale, one of the stars of Out of the Furnace, there as Patrick Bateman in Mary Heron's American Psycho from 2000. For many of us, Our first proper introduction to Christian Bale, of course, the adult Christian Bale. We know there are some Newsies fans out there. There was also that Spielberg movie. Empire of the Sun, yeah. Empire of the Sun, there you go. Given Out of the Furnace's subject matter, it's appropriate that we did set four of the film stars against each other in our film-spotting deathmatch poll question last week. I shared those results in the review segment of the show, but Forrest Whitaker was at the bottom, then Casey Affleck, Woody Harrelson in second place, Christian Bale in first place with 44%, being that he is the biggest star of the bunch, and He's very well known and very well regarded for the Batman movies. That certainly wasn't a shock. We got some comments from our listeners, Josh, including this from Eddie Bolton in Dublin, Ireland. He says, The reason for my pick of Christian Bale is simple. His underrated performances throughout the Dark Knight trilogy brought back a character I idolized as a child. His portrayal of Bruce Wayne made me again invest in a character I had lost to campiness and toy merchandise. His partnership with Christopher Nolan has included possibly Nolan's best offering to date in The Prestige, and any future collaboration is something you couldn't possibly deprive us of. Not forgetting his upcoming Terrence Malick and David O. Russell features, Christian is a tour de force that Casey Affleck could only hope to be. Oh, there's no need to knock Casey Affleck. He I made mean, a really on.
2: compelling case. You know, he, as I said in the review, Bale is really good with David O. Russell in American Hustle. I'm assuming that's the picture he's referring to. Probably and, so. Yeah, that one did start to win me over. Greetings from Split Croatia. My name is Zvonimir. says he won't enter a last name. I imagine the first name will be butchered due to film spotting tradition. Naturally. Probably appropriate. I'm reading it then. Wanted to voice my support for Mr. Woody Harrelson. Why? Well, Bale is and probably will be remembered as Batman. Forrest W. was in Bloodsport with Van Damme. How isn't that haunting him?
1: Affleck who? Woody is too unique. And should, by default, win. First comment ever, I'm pretty sure, from Croatia. Thank you for that. Tim Evans in London says, My gut told me to go with Woody Harrelson since he's got by far the best and most diverse career here and is one of America's most underrated actors. However, outside of his current collaborations with Oren Moverman, I'm not sure how many greats he has left in him, whilst Affleck is just starting to blossom and push his range, and I'm interested in watching that develop over the next decade or so. And before we close out with Eleanor's comments, that really was the angle a lot of people took in voting for Affleck, they were thinking about the way we phrased the question. If you're saying who has the most potential? Which right. we kinda were asking. If you were just basing it on performances up to this point, you might vote differently. But like Wasn't you, Josh, who had the best career Yeah, you want to see where they're going with their career, and Affleck intrigues you more and also intrigues Eleanor in Portland, Oregon. I just voted in your Out of the Furnace death match, and wanted to explain why Casey Affleck
2: got my vote. All four men have done fantastic work, and all four men have fantastic work still ahead of them, but I feel like Casey Affleck is still coiled up with unrealized potential. There's a great performance lurking within that we've only caught glimpses of so far. Films like Jerry, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, and The Killer Inside Me have all revealed aspects of what he is capable of But I really feel like his great performance, the one that's going to blow everyone away and put him in the top tier of American actors, is still to come. And I vote to keep him around to see it. Eleanor also says, I want to put in a plug for both of us to catch up with Museum Hours. That's a movie that's been
1: on my watch list for some just time. what we need another movie i know we're pressured to try to fit in i really may try to get it in though yeah. if i can find a copy of it i'm not sure how available it is before we do record our top 10 films of the year show and i'm with eleanor on most of what she said i really like casey affleck as an actor but in particular i'm a big fan of his performance in the killer inside me the michael winterbottom film i think that's affleck's best performance that's his best. and he is a lead in that movie so do you think he's
2: given His best. Like do you do you feel like I do and some of the listeners that there might be another level yet? Or do you feel like we've seen it? I think it's
1: the material, it's the role, and I do think he does just need to further mature probably as an actor, but all the raw materials are certainly there. Let's get to this week's film spotting poll question. We did say, Josh, last week on the show that we were going to devote our top five to our golden brick Mm -hmm. nominees. And we made a change for a couple of reasons, but the big one was simply that we realized that a few weeks ago we gave you our golden brick preview show. And a lot of these films we've talked about, in fact, all of the choices you're going to hear in a minute have been talked about on the show. And some of them may just come up in our top 10 films of the year show or as we get into some of our blowout stuff and our performances and the rap party picks. So it really seemed potentially redundant to devote another top five to going over the golden bricks. What are the golden bricks if you're a film spotting listener who isn't familiar? Well, we do try to recognize basically our favorite Overlook movie of the year. And by Overlook, we simply mean non mainstream, not necessarily a ton of buzz about the movie. But other criteria we consider we like to give the award to a young, or emerging filmmaker. We also especially like to consider movies that are formally inventive or at least taking some risk. There's some creativity on the screen there. And this year, we sort of isolated it down to five movies that also met these other three criteria. They all got full reviews on the show, as I said. Both of us like them. Mm -hmm. These aren't just picks that one of us got behind. And listeners, as we usually do consider for the Golden Brick, listeners told us these are movies that they largely saw. Because of us. And those, the two of those, the full review that it got on the show and the fact that we both liked it, that's
2: not something you can really control necessarily because of no. the schedules and obviously how we respond. But it was nice that
1: it did work out that way this year. Absolutely. So we have five Golden Brick nominees for you. You guys certainly get a say in picking the winner here, which we will announce at our Film Spotting Wrap Party on January 11th here in Chicago, the live show. The first Golden Brick nominee, Josh, is... The Act of Killing from director Joshua Oppenheimer and this boy talk
2: about formerly inventive. This is really the mind boggling documentary about 60s era Indonesian death squad leaders who Oppenheimer interviews today. And part of the structure is they recreate Mm -hmm. what they committed in the past. Now, if you haven't seen The Act of Killing and it was hard to get a viewing of throughout the
1: year, it's going to be available for purchase. Unfortunately, not until January, January 14th. Yeah, just after the wrap party there. Our second nominee is Beyond the Hills. This is the Romanian film from director Christian Munju. He is the director who gave us four months, three weeks, and two days. This is a movie about two friends who grew up in the same orphanage, and they come into conflict when one of them finds refuge in a convent. Unfortunately, this is another one listeners are going to have a hard time seeing. There's no scheduled release date for a DVD or streaming, but those two central female performances are really something in that film. And talk about movies that end... With a great ending and great closing shots, we really were fans of Beyond the Hills. Our third film comes from a
2: familiar director, actually, David Gordon Green. But it's a return to form for him after some of the broader comedies he did. That was this year's Prince Avalanche. It start. Paul Rudd and Emile Hirsch as two guys from the city who spend the summer of 1988 doing highway repair work, and I think they're in Texas. Does that sound right? Somewhere in Texas. This one is available on digital rental services, and if you have a Netflix DVD subscription, you're able to find it there, too.
1: So I will admit, it only just now occurred to me that David Gordon Green doesn't fit our criteria at all as a young or emerging filmmaker, but again... They're more guidelines than set rules. They are what help us make some of these choices. And that was a movie, as you said, a return to form, we felt like, and a movie that took us both, I think, a little bit by surprise as much as we appreciate his earlier films. There's a lot that could have gone wrong with Prince Avalanche, but it really is a movie with a lot of rewards.
2: Well, as you're talking about, too, it strikes me that it is formally inventive compared to just about all of his films. That's true. It doesn't have that... Malick-like dreaminess no. that his early stuff does.
1: It's certainly not like the comedy. So so yeah, I think it's worthy of this list. Our fourth nominee is Short Term 12. It's directed by Destin Cretton. It stars Brie Larson. As we said at the top here of this segment, she plays a supervisor at a foster care facility who is looking after her teen charges and At the same time, trying to reckon with her own troubled past, this is another one that is available for purchase not until January 14th. And there is some good love out there for this movie. I'm figuring that there are a lot of film spotting listeners who probably saw this one come up quite a bit on other movie review podcasts they listen to or other movie review sites they visit. And I wouldn't be surprised if it makes quite a few top ten lists here at the end of the year. Nevertheless, a movie that flew under the radar a little bit and one we wanted to support here with our Golden Brick candidates. And that brings us to our fifth and final nominee. Which is another documentary. It's Stories
2: We Tell from director Sarah Polly. This is Polly's third feature, but this one takes a look at her family and her own origins. It really deals with the identity of her biological father, something she discovers in the process of making the film. And it's very formally inventive in the fact that she recreates some of the events from before her life, even with her parents and restages those. So a lot going on here in how she plays with documentary Mm -hmm. form. Stories We Tell, you can get through digital rental as well. And there are DVDs at Netflix and also at Redbox.
1: So I did want to throw in here, and I think you have one as well, Josh, one of my regrets from The Golden Bricks. And... I felt better about it when I thought we had five emerging filmmakers. Now I feel less good about this pick because that was really the reason why I left out this film and this filmmaker, Drinking Buddies. I've mentioned it a couple times. Chicago shot film stars Anna Kendrick, Olivia Wilde, my guy Jake Johnson. Some really good performances in it. This one is way under the radar. I don't know that you could call it real formerly daring, but certainly Joe Swanberg has his own style. And I think this is his best film I've seen from him by far. I do consider this point while he maybe isn't, a big known Steven Spielberg type filmmaker an egoless director if you will Swanberg is pretty established oh and yeah so for it's a me, familiar name didn't quite make the cut
2: yeah the one I would have liked to have seen on here is from up on Poppy Hill the animated feature from Goro Miyazaki that's Hayao Miyazaki's son and it's a really delicate coming of age story about a teen girl in 1964 Yokohama been sort of overshadowed by Hayao Miyazaki's now in release The Wind Rises uh, in some ways it's, it's just as wonderful or maybe almost as wonderful as Hayao Miyazaki's
1: film. But From Up on Poppy Hill, if you did miss that, is available now on DVD. So another choice here we'll throw out real quick. Not one of our finalists, but probably could have been because we both did like the movie, even though it's one that I think you did write a little bit about. Did you write a full review of Computer Chess? Yeah, Josh. I did. Okay, I did not. So it's a movie that unfortunately didn't get really a full discussion here on the show, but Franco Asmail writes in and says, while I didn't terribly love it, many critics did, so I think you should consider computer chess. It has a ton going for it to be considered. I mean, it's surreal, kind of opaque, and plays with the form big time. Totally golden brick worthy. Have any of you given it a look? It is the kind of film very few have heard of and fewer have seen. Also perfect for the golden brick. Franco's dead on.
2: I mean, he it is. hits so many of the qualifications. I think if we had liked it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Just let's put it this way, been a little more excited about it, it would probably would have been on the list. But we both did
1: like it. We both did like it and it's one I said when we were looking at our films, I think at the halfway point, our favorite films of the year. Computer chess was one of two movies that I really felt like required a second viewing before I could fully get behind it. Haven't had a chance yet to do that. But a great pick from Franco. We will announce the winner of the Golden Brick at our January eleventh live show here in Chicago at the main stage. But you can vote now and help determine that winner. Pick your golden brick worthy film, just go to filmspotting.net and you'll find that poll. One other note we did want to highlight, our friend Scott Tobias, who's going to be on our show next week, as he is every year mm-hmm. for our Top 10 Films of the Year show. He, of course, writes for The Dissolve, and as he does every year as well, he's got his two-part article on the year's 100-plus must-see movies. He breaks down his list by release date and into categories, The Essentials, Hollywood, The System Works, Auteur Obligations, Notable Documentaries, Indie Curiosities, and Imported Goods. And this can be found on letterbox you can also read Scott's list over at the dissolve we'll link to both in our show notes at filmspotting.net and i'm not going to confess on air how many of the you films in that seen. 100 i haven't seen did you go to letterbox and I, see I, your I percentage that,
2: i i just like i don't know a percentage but i do like the fact that it it takes two parts or Scott to feel make us feel so guilty right I mean this is an epic guilt inducing piece he's written but you know it always happens this time of year I don't know what number I would have to see where I'd feel like okay I did my due diligence you always feel like there's so much you should have caught up on well
1: I don't know what my number would be either but I'd say it'd be about 40 higher than where I'm at
2: 40 than where 40. you're
1: at yeah but I also look at it this way I'm still holding down the day job my family still talks to me, so. No excuses. Maybe, maybe it's a good thing that. Film Spotting I, Nation doesn't want to hear <laughs> that excuses. That I didn't see those 40 extra films. <laughs> well, I guess you got to have your priorities straight. Speaking of priorities, if you are such a devoted listener that you have the Film Spotting app for Android, iPhone, or Windows 8 phone, or if you just want to go to filmspotting.net and click on the app section, you can get a little bit of extra bonus audio. And this week, we're going to share a few minutes of feedback on some of our recent top fives. Maybe at least our movies set in the South. We might also get into some of your feedback on our steamy sexual awakening. So, again, that's coming in. Our bonus content, all the information you need about that is at filmspotting.net. Just click on apps. Our
2: look at the year that was continues next with the biggest disappointments and surprises of 2013. I have to admit Adam, I'm still shocked that you liked Pacific Rim and I didn't. Might you say
1: that was both a surprise and a disappointment? <gasps> Wonder where you got that. Film spotting top five is next. Stay with us. just wanted to interrupt real quick to do what we usually do here during this segment. Some thank yous. We want to highlight everyone who came to filmspotting.net or went to PayPal and shared some of their hard-earned dollars in support of the show it really does keep us doing what we're doing and you heard some music there from asthma boy the tracks the city has known us and careful where you hide a completely objective recommendation we got from listener annie martin i'm a recent subscriber
2: long time listener i thoroughly enjoy the podcast and have discovered so many of my favorite films via your recommendations i especially enjoyed your recent review of david gordon green's prince avalanche one of my top five favorites for this year I wanted to humbly suggest a musician to feature, knowing that you guys always include great music in your episodes. I believe Asthma Boy would fit right in. His albums are available for free download if you are interested. Personally, I think the songs This City Has Known Us and Careful Where You
1: Hide are good for a first listen. Full disclosure. He's my husband, but I recommend him regardless. (laughs) So we'll (laughs) have some full disclosure as well. Annie there in Redmond, Washington, is also a $10 a month subscriber. And I don't know that that's ever happened. She's new this week. I don't know that anyone has ever bought their way into... Is film spotting payola going? Yeah, exactly. Is that what's going on But you know what? Honestly... Annie sent us that recommendation. I forwarded it to Sam, who is our resident music guru, mm-hmm. our producer, and he really dug it. And he said, you should give it a listen. See what you think. I listened to it. I really dug it. So it honestly didn't matter if Annie donated or not. We would have played it's as Boy this week. And we do feature very regularly listener musician picks. So if you have a featured artist out there, whether you are related to them, brother, sister, niece, nephew, husband, whatever the case may be, we'll take that recommendation. We will consider it. Can't guarantee we're going to play it, but we will consider it. We also got a $10 a month donation from Aaron Teachman in Washington, D.C. To all the lovely people who put this
2: fantastic podcast together, I discovered film spotting when some very interesting tidbits from your live event ended up in my Twitter feed. Sam's work there as well. <laughs> I was searching for listening material that would scratch my film itch at that very moment, so I subscribed on iTunes and was very, very happy with what I heard. The first episode that I listened to included your Sacred Cow discussion of Die Hard. I was delighted to hear two such learned gentlemen saying every positive (laughs)
1: thing
2: about Die Hard that I'd been thinking myself for ages. I poked around that Pantheon thing, and my heart stopped. Amidst all of the classics and art films I expected, I discovered two of my all-time favorite flicks, Out of Sight and Midnight Run. I felt right at home. I'm still having one problem with the show, though, and that is figuring out which team I'm on. On the one hand, I think that The Bourne Ultimatum is not only one of the finest action films ever made, it's also one of the most astute and timely political thrillers I've ever seen. On the other hand, I think Argo is an overrated, if tidily made, bit of old-fashioned Hollywood ethnocentrism. I guess it will take a bit more listening for me to figure all of that out. To that end, I will happily pony up and pay the dealer. Thanks for all the hours of conversation, the fun community, and the many movies
1: I never would have discovered if not for you. Thank you so much for the very kind words there, Aaron. You know, the interesting part of that, Josh, is I'm not sure I disagree with Argo being overrated if tidally made and a bit of old-fashioned Hollywood ethnocentrism. I liked it a lot more than you, but I don't know that she's wrong. You think that's accurate? I <laughs> yeah. Think, I actually think she's on my team now that I read this. It sounds like I team mean, Josh.
2: I don't know if I'd praise
1: Born Ultimatum that much, but I liked it more than you. You didn't like Born Ultimatum more than me. Which born is that? That's the, the latest, the one. most recent one. No, the Born Legacy is the most recent. One. Oh, the that's the, one. the third. The Greengrass. See, they've made too many Born films. <laughs> Can't even keep them straight. <laughs> I think I like that movie more than you. I've had it on All quite right. a few. Hence her confusion and fives. mine. Yes, there you go. And you know, as we are making new film spotting T-shirts, I should say that it does occur to me a Team Josh T-shirt and a Team Adam T-shirt would be a really good idea. You know, inventory wise, I'd probably have to order what three for you.
2: Yeah, that that, that sounds about
1: right, but that's all right. (laughs) Debbie, your wife, will take one. (laughs) One for each of the kids. (laughs) Wendy's out there, your friend. She'll take one. Yeah. So, Yeah, let's try that. Let's see how that goes. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Send us your picks. Actually, don't, please. I I, I, I don't need the the distraction, but I do (laughs) like the idea of a Team Josh and Team Adam t-shirt. Josh, we also sometimes get buck-a-show donations, Mm -hmm. people who give us a dollar for every week of the year whether we do a new show or not that year. It's very kind, that $52 donation. Well, maybe because of the holidays, people really in the giving mood. We have two, $2 a show donations. Robert in Toronto, Ontario, and Amy Sullivan in Germantown, Maryland. She's got a long one here, but some great comments, and I think we're sharing. Dear Adam and Josh, it's time. After four
2: years, it's time I make our relationship official. I started listening to Film Spotting four years ago when you were starting your new Hollywood marathon and I had just started reading Pictures at a Revolution. It was fate. Since then, I've gone back and I've listened to sometimes more than once all 469 episodes. Wow, What I've enjoyed the I'm most... sorry. <laughs> well, beside the genius that is Josh's Massacre theater performances or the nicknames back in the day is the conversation. So often movie reviewers are really movie recappers, which is always disappointing. I appreciate that Film Spotting Has always been about having an opinion about a film and then hashing it out, breaking it down, and trying to understand what it all means. Some of the most refreshing reviews have been about films you've both liked, and we're trying to figure out why. You take your discussions seriously, but never too seriously. You seem to be having a great deal of fun, and you have respect for the other's opinions. That's rare these days. One day I will own a T shirt that says, I hear what you're saying, but you're completely
1: wrong. Well, I'll just say here really quickly that I really appreciate Amy's comments, of course, but also she pretty much describes exactly the show we hope we're putting on. Whether or not we succeed every week, that's exactly what we are trying to accomplish. Amy does continue to say, Until then, I have my film spotting t shirt to keep me warm. Anyway, my point, and I do have one, it's time to donate. So I'm giving $104 for 2014. A buck a show for me, and a buck a show for my movie date, that Anna B. You can find her on Twitter. She's the Josh to my Adam, and we've been each other's movie date since we saw the Swedish version of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo in 2009. She's the one who gave me pictures at a revolution see fate each year in december we get together for a long night of movie top fives Clearly, you inspire us. In December 2010, we saw a Michael Fassbender movie at the AFI Silver Spring and sat in the lobby afterwards going over our top fives for so long, they finally had to ask us to leave so they could lock up. (laughs) We hadn't even noticed. I've been to the AFI Silver Spring with film spotting listeners recently, actually. Back in the summer, I saw 20 Feet from Stardom, that documentary from 2013 at that great theater. Each year, it's one of my favorite nights of the year, and it was inspired by you. And I've never given you anything back. That's just bad karma. So next, I'll be heading over to the website to put my money where my movie reviews are. It's the very least I can do. So thank you for the great conversation and the inspiration. Merry Christmas, Adam and Josh. And she did share with us here in the PS, the top fives that Amy and that Anna B share every year. You want to list them real quick? Yeah, their categories are the favorite movie I saw in the theater,
2: favorite movie I saw at home, movies I wished I saw but missed. Movies that disappointed, kind of like our top five today. Favorite male performance, favorite female performance, dusty moments, also memorable moments. She says here the alien abortion is not dusty, but memorable. Yeah, from
1: Prometheus. And one more unexpected reactions so kind of surprises Maybe there a little bit as well some good categories there and again a great email thank you so much amy and to all of our donors actually we have a few more a couple five dollar a month donors ian in portland oregon Corey in union kentucky two silver club donors ben in newton kansas and mark in brookline mass and finally three other donors we want to thank that would be cameron from darlinghurst new south wales australia zach kircher and mark from santa clarita california and here i failed i knew i forgot some In preparation for the show, we got a card in the mail, some great comments from Zachary Kircher, and I failed to include them in our notes. Sorry, Zach. Guess what? Zach's going to get a mention on this week's show. He's going to get a mention on next week's show. So there, that's my payback, hopefully, for
2: Zach. We also want to give a quick plug here to our friend Jeff Goldsmith, who does the Q&A with Jeff Goldsmith. He has Philomena co-star and co-writer on, Steve Coogan. And that's a really interesting film for Coogan's participation. So that should be a good listen. Also, if you dig filmmaker interviews, Backstory issue 08 launched recently on the iPad. Each issue of Backstory has all sorts of interviews, full-length screenplays to read, videos to watch, and more. At the moment, they're iPad-only. Issue 08 goes a bit beyond Jeff's usual podcast, as the cover story is about 12 Years a Slave, features director Steve McQueen weighing in, along with cinematographer Sean Bobbitt and actress Lupita Nyong'o, who plays Patsy, a character we've talked about a lot on the show. You can see the table of contents for Backstory at Backstory.net.
0: You didn't call the police? No, I didn't. Why? I believe you. Why? I uh, believe that you've been locked up for a long time. Don't touch
1: me. (laughs) You're listening to Film Spotting. He's Josh. I'm Adam. That was Elizabeth Olsen and Josh Brolin in Spike Lee's Old Boy, which back in January of this year, Josh, you had Old Boy as your number three most anticipated film of the year. Yikes. It also did inspire our recently wrapped Creano Tours marathon. And if you listen to last week's show, you'll know that Old Boy didn't quite live up to expectations. You had very high expectations, considering you placed it at number three. Didn't quite make my list, but one I too was anticipating because I like the original a lot more than you, and I also like Spike Lee. So We were hoping it would be good. We were hoping it would be great. Alas, it was not.
2: One of the reasons I put it that high, to be honest with you, is at that point, I had not seen Park Chan-wook's old book. Right. So it was kind of a package deal for me. Like, I was really excited about watching the original first and Mm -hmm. then the remake, and
1: neither one worked out for me. Well, safe to say, then, it was a disappointment for both of us. So that brings us to this week's Film Spotting Top 5. We're doing not just our disappointments, but our top five surprises. So we may have three surprises and two disappointments? Or maybe, Josh, you just decided to be Pollyanna and just went with five surprises and had no negativity. It was really up to us to decide. I tried to balance it out on the positive side. So I've got two disappointments, three surprises. I think... I am with you as well, Josh. Nice. So we are in sync on this one, and why don't you kick it off? What was your number five, surprise or disappointment? Well, let me first give a caveat, because really a surprise
2: for me this year was pain and gain, but that is going to come up. I'm warning you now. How that's could it not going, have been your number one? It's going to come up on the top ten show, so we'll get to I know it's it. going to, but some of my picks are going to come up on our top ten well, show. Well, there's just some I'm other shocked. stuff I wanted to talk about, too. Okay. Number five is a disappointment, and it's only God forgives, which was my number four anticipated film of the year. Going back to that same list, Uh, I think you know the risk of having a signature directorial style like Danish director Nicholas Winding Refn has is that there is this danger you're going to tip over into self-parody at some point. And I, I think that is what happens here. The movie stars Ryan Gosling of Refn's Drive as a Bangkok drug dealer and a fight club operator who gets caught between the local police and his domineering mother, who's played by Kristen Scott Thomas. And everything that works in Drive and worked in Bronson and somewhat worked for me in Valhalla Rising, very different picture than those, but still probably my favorite Refn film, It just plays like camp here in this picture, all those elements, the colored lights, the thrumming music, the bursts of really extreme violence. I did wonder, though, when I was putting together this list, it brought up a question about the times where we feel that a director does go into self-parody. Is it really on the director or is it on us? You know, is it that we're tiring of the style? I think about Terrence Malick's The New World, which for me is the self-parody Malick film. I know others adore it. People because have that's said to that. the wonder people have said to the wonder exactly right. is his self parody film. so just thinking about it that way, maybe wonder how much of it is them, how much of it is it our perception, either way, only God forgives really did not work for
1: me well, I want to say that only God forgives was on some kind of most anticipated Films of the Year list for me earlier this year, and for the same reasons. I love Drive. I have come around to really being a fan of Ryan Gosling, and I want to see anything Winding Refn is going to do, but it's a film I still haven't even caught up with yet, and as I'm looking at my end-of-the-year list of screeners and movies coming out that are piling up, there's really no chance I'm going to see it, well, which I feel bad is, about. But There aren't that many defenders of it either that would make you maybe feel like you have to exactly. see where you fall. Yeah, that hasn't happened yet. My number five is also a disappointment and it's the movie Elysium from director Neil Blomkamp. You can hear our review of it on episode 455. I wasn't surprised a bit though, Josh, to see it be the most popular choice on the recent IndieWire criticWire survey, which you participated in. I did not submit anything there. The question from Sam Adams who runs it was what was your biggest disappointment of the year Elysium was a very popular option, and a couple critics nailed it. I'm going to read some of their comments because, as I said, you can go back and hear what we had to say about it. Danny Bose from RogerEber.com and Movies by Bose says, in terms not just of expectations beforehand but actual potential, the movie that most brought out my inner Michael Corleone in Havana was Elysium. It could have been an extraordinarily relevant look through the time-honored prism of science fiction at how the moneyed few abuse and subjugate the less privileged many. It didn't even need to make that main point. It could have just been the backdrop for an action movie which it ended up being. But it could have been the skillfully mounted backdrop for a good action movie instead of the headache-inducing mess it ended up being. It was too grim and gritty to be good, cheesy fun, and too dumb to be the action movie with the brain and conscience it seemed to want to be. And yet the potential is right there, the entire movie, just begging to be made into a better movie. And I think Danny is dead on, echoes certainly. A lot of my thoughts, though, he probably said it more eloquently. And Glenn Heath Jr. from San Diego City Beat and Slant Magazine said, This seemed like the perfect opportunity for a young, visionary filmmaker to create something special within the Hollywood system. Instead, Elysium proved to be a clumsy and often poorly paced narrative, thoroughly lacking in originality and brains. In short, its simplistic, ugly, and vindictive view of humanity's future is worthy of our scorn. Unlike Danny and Glenn, I didn't have tremendously high hopes for Elysium it's not as if I love District 9 so much that I thought this was an absolute can't miss that's why it's my number five pick but I did think it was going to say something halfway interesting and be entertaining it was neither for me just as Danny and Glenn expressed it and it also has the worst performance of the year for me in it that's Jodie Foster is it worse than Charlton Copley's in
2: old boy because I wonder I did like Elysium you did. well enough but in retrospect, if I went to watch it now, I wonder if Copley's performance in Old Boy would make me
1: not like Elysium just because it would be in my head. Because he's, he's also two. the he's also the
2: villain there.
1: So. I know, and his character, not so much his performance, also. You drove had problems me crazy. with that character. That's right, yeah. I did have problems in Elysium, but I am ranking Jodie Foster just okay. slightly higher on the annoying scale than Copley in Old Boy. So Elysium <laughs> is my number five disappointment of the year. Rage is going into
0: receivership. It's going bankrupt. No, he claimed he didn't want to have kids while he was in school. Yeah, it's nice to he hadn't changed. He student not gambling debts on this ranch that's falling
2: apart. I caught you on the right day then. <laughs> oh. All right, let's get positive. My number four is a surprise, and that's Ben Affleck in To the Wonder. I'm... Hard on Affleck in the sense that I feel like he's, he's a limited actor and director. We all remember the Argo situation. I don't expect great things from him as Batman, but I really felt like he was perfectly cast by Terrence Malick in this film. He plays this solidly American environmental inspector who falls for a woman in France, and she comes back to live with him. In Middle America, the woman is played by Olga Kirilenko, and the two are intentionally physical opposites. She's thin and delicate. He's a really solid, thick figure. She dances and spins. He hardly moves, really, in the film. But I think... But he wears khakis well. A, he does wear khakis well, yes. I think that it's an intentional entirely physical performance. And you have to give Affleck credit for buying into that and going that way. He's just a perfect match for what Malik is trying to do in, in this parable that's about both human
1: and divine love. Just really worked for me. Well, my number four is another disappointment for me, and it's another movie. It's Touchy Feely. This is a movie that stars Rosemary DeWitt from Rachel Getting Married fame and other movies that I'm a fan of. Ellen Page. From Juno, fame is one of the stars, and it's directed by and written by Lynn Shelton, who did Your Sister's Sister last year with Rosemarie DeWitt, and she is the director, of course, of... One of my all-time favorite movies, frankly, at least in film spotting history, Hump Day. And it also has such a provocative setup in addition to those participants. It's about a massage therapist that DeWitt plays who basically starts to have problems doing her job when she develops this aversion to bodily contact. That is going to be a problem when it's your job to put your hands on people and all of a sudden she starts to feel repelled by that. So I like that setup. I was really fascinated by where it would go. It's a movie we didn't review on the show, but I did write about it briefly on Letterboxd, and I expressed there my shock at how I didn't swoon for the first time for a Lynn Shelton movie. And I also noted that DeWitt, she's a great actress, and she's really good in it. We had about this time that poll question on filmspotting.net about which actress most should be in a Woody Allen comedy, and Rosemary DeWitt was not one of the options, but I really think after seeing Touchy Feely, she probably should be.
0: Chesney asked me to move in with him. (laughs) Are you serious? Yeah. Uh, Last night in front of my family at dinner. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What the No joke. Right? That's... Did you... Are you... You're... Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know. Yes. Good, good. I'm kind of flipping out about it. Well, of course you are. You wouldn't be you if you didn't flip out about it. It's great. It's fine. It's normal. It's normal. Really? Yes.
1: So she's very good. There are other performers who are good. But what really bothered me, I guess is kind of like what we were saying about Elysium in terms of having that great setup and not following through. That core of this movie, human connection via physical, via tactile means, not just intellectual connection with someone. I wondered how many of us really ever do get our hands dirty, literally get our hands dirty in that way day to day. But the film's central conceit does feel ultimately underexplored, it feels just like a provocative setup, it's squandered, and the end really feels way, way, way too tidy, so for me, all those elements, like I said, having those performers, having Lynn Shelton, I thought this was going to be another, for sure, Film that was going to make my top 10 at the end of the year. And maybe that was part of it. Maybe I just went in with too high expectations, but Touchy Feely didn't work and was my number four disappointment.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I like both of those other Lynn Shelton films too. And the reason I haven't caught up with this one yet is just because I've seen that reaction from a lot of people on this last film. So there does seem to be something missing this time around. My number three is a surprise, and it's Andrew Dice Clay in Blue Jasmine. Oh, good pick. In our review, we talked a lot about him. Yeah. Um, and we also talked about the unevenness. I mean, Michael Phillips was on for that. Review. View and uh, all three of us. Nobody really went for that picture. Uh, it stars Kate Blanchett as a disgraced socialite trying to start a new life by moving in with her middle-class sister. And Blanchett is just full tragedy in the film. Other parts have broad comedy, but hitting the sweet spot, the tragicomic sweet spot, was Andrew Dice Clay. He plays the sister's ex-husband, Augie.
0: But what Tom? if you tell him and it causes trouble, or well, maybe a divorce? But if you don't say anything, it could have been a passing thing. He never knows. He lives on happy with his wife. You know, I would tell him because that's what a friend's for. You gotta have his back. That's what I tell him. It's a tough cog. Yeah, I don't
2: know. He's balding and barrel chested. He's he's a beaten down guy, but still proud. You sense that pride within him. And of course, you know, being a stand-up comic, he's got great comic timing in the picture. And and the most important thing he brings to the movie was this melancholy sort of grace. So Andrew Dice Clay, I don't know if he'll get any sort of notoriety with year-end awards and stuff, but it really was one of the pleasurable surprises for me from this year. I'm
1: glad to see him make your list, and it does make me feel bad because I knew that there were picks like that there were actors and actresses like that who really jumped out to me this year and i'm sure i'm forgetting and overlooking them i can't wait to get some of the feedback from listeners and have my memory refreshed on other performances like andrew dice clay but you're right that really is a standout one this is going to horrify a lot of our longtime listeners who know that i still have not finished watching the complete series the wire i did manage to watch the last season of and don't judge me here josh entourage on hbo okay and andrew dice clay is in that series and he is playing himself on that last season but he's really good Mm. so i wasn't completely shocked to see him put on such a good performance in blue jasmine that said He was basically playing himself. Yeah, I was going to say, this is is a different level. Yeah, Yeah, it really is. So you're right, a great pick there. My number three is the movie Enough Said from writer-director Nicole Holofsener. And this is a movie that I'm going to go out on a limb right now and say is going to get a lot more love here over the next few weeks on the show. I'm not going to waste my breath or listeners' time now. But I will say that if you go back and look at Holofsener's filmography— I honestly can't remember if I ever saw her debut film, Walking and Talking. I do know that I did not like Lovely and Amazing or Friends with Money. I did like Please Give. We reviewed it here on the show. It was actually a golden brick candidate, but it was really Maddie who was the big proponent of Please Give. I didn't go nuts for it, but I've always found with her films, there are moments of brilliance, great writing. There's some real insights, especially largely into the lives of women. And there's that great mixture of humor and pathos, similar To Woody Allen movies and a lot of her characters seem like they're right out of a Woody Allen movie often privileged and we still see some of the problems they have despite their privileged lifestyles but I always felt like there was never enough humor to sustain my viewing anyway and plots that I felt eventually started to strain and stumble and you get enough said this movie that stars Julia Louis-Dreyfus as a divorcee who has a daughter heading off to college her life is really in Transition and turmoil, and she meets James Gandolfini, who's in a similar situation, and they make a really strong connection, but we see that connection does have some conflicts of its own. There just isn't a single false note in Enough Set. And that was a big surprise for me. It's my number three. I'm really glad to see that. I'm glad to see all the love that Enough Set is getting
2: because I've been a fan of Hall of seniors from, from the start, really. And um, this is, though, I will say, her best picture for sure. And uh, yeah, might even talk a little bit more about it coming up on our list here. My number two, though, is going back to a disappointment. And it's The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Um, it was my number one most anticipated movie of the year. Actually I was probably the only one looking forward to this film. But the narrative did intrigue me, this story of a life magazine photo editor who has this runaway imagination. I think Ben Stiller is capable of something great. I really do. And I absolutely love the work of the screenwriter involved here, Steve Conrad, who wrote and directed the promotion. He also wrote the screenplay for the Nicolas
1: Cage film, You're The kind Weather of the Man. Leader of the Steve Conrad <laughs> fan club i don't know that there's a fan club but (laughs) i think you started it in your basement josh don't lie you know really talented guy
2: and just seeing his involvement i thought what a combination here i can't say much because reviews are still under embargo but i will say that the movie has a serious beard problem for one thing and it's actually not just a visual thing it plays into the theme as well it's indicative of this lack of self-awareness that the movie has overall maybe we'll get a chance to get into
1: it a little bit more down the road i don't think we will because (laughs) there's really no chance i'm going to fit it in it just doesn't interest me at all the trailers actually really drive me crazy really yeah Yeah, nothing about it grabs my attention. Maybe it just looks a little too whimsical. Josh, you you have the whimsy on your side of the table. Yeah, it, it, it strives for that and does not hit it nearly enough. Well, my number two is another surprise. And it's another one that we're going to discuss more. I don't want to divulge too much at this point. It's a movie that opens Christmas Day and the movie is her. The surprise is Scarlett Johansson's performance in her. I think the last time I really liked Scarlett Johansson in a movie was probably Ghost World. I did like her in Lost in Translation as well, as I recall. I've always felt she's a little bit too self-aware on screen. She never truly disappears into a role. Her voice can sometimes be a little bit distracting for me, that, that husky. Sometimes it feels like she's even trying to be more sultry than she needs to be. But mainly it's her mannerisms. Again, just feeling a little bit of falseness in her movements. There's something about her characters that have always driven me a little bit crazy. And here in her... She's completely disembodied. It's just her voice. And I'll just point out for now, Josh, that there's a scene in the movie. It's where we get introduced to her. And she is an operating system that Theodore, the main character played by Joaquin Phoenix, installs to help run his life and really to help kind of be a friend because he's pretty lonely. The entire movie hinges on that scene. We have to believe That they're going to have such a connection that they might just fall in love, like truly in love. And I think that scene is so crucial because that encounter has to be one where she doesn't just sound kind of human or totally human. She has to sound like she's right there in the room with him, someone who just met him maybe. They made a connection at a party. They can't wait to get on the phone and talk to each other again. And that's how she sounds within the first 10 seconds of that installation and her introducing herself and Theodore introducing himself to her. She is someone who is truly alive and you get that not only in that scene, but in every scene as her plays out. So being hard on Scarlett Johansson over the years, this was a revelation for me.
2: Yeah, I, I th- actually think her voice has always been a part of what she brings to the table as an actress, and uh, I th- I think uh, people are too hard on her actually. She's, given, she, she's an actress who has been used poorly yeah, often, I'll put it that fair. way. So I guess I wouldn't count this as a surprise. It is a very good performance, and it's good to see vocal performances getting recognized as this one is, because I've long been a proponent of performances in animated films being eligible for awards and such. Mm-hmm. So if this breaks that wall a little bit, that would be great. Alright, my number Number one surprise of the year is going back to enough said it's not the film itself because i was really anticipating that but it is julia louis dreyfus's lead performance as eva
0: so nice to have met you you too yeah great bye bye be careful she has a lot of friends you think they have threesomes what why would you say that i, I know but apparently it's what they're doing these days that's what i heard Oh, my God. Right? I'm afraid that window's closed.
2: I've long been a fan of hers. I mean, her work on Seinfeld is brilliant, but her gifts always seemed perfectly suited to the small screen. And and really, when you think about the laugh tracks of sitcoms in particular, her timing is just so impeccable. I mean, she just hits right when she needs to. And this film, um, she does a lot of that. I mean, it is a very funny picture, but she also gets to be a little bit more dramatic here. And the key for me is that she does that without abandoning her comic chops yeah. at all. So it allows the repartee that she's always had to to not only get laughs, but in a lot of the scenes, if you look closely at what we're laughing at, there are also layers of insecurity and sadness underneath what she's saying as she's going for a laugh. And that comes forth. It's probably been there even in Seinfeld, but it really comes forth in this Really rich film. So I thought she'd be good in this. Um, I mean, I think about Hull of Senior using Jennifer Aniston well in Friends with Money. You didn't like it, but no. I liked it quite a bit. So I knew she was capable of of giving an actress this shot. But really, I never thought she'd turn in one of the performances of the
1: year. I think that's where we differ just a little bit is that she did exceed my expectations even, but I've always felt like that was in her and it wasn't a complete surprise or as much of a surprise for you. But she's really fantastic in enough said. And maybe as we do get into more discussion about that film on upcoming shows, I'm going to highlight my favorite scene in that movie. And I think it does speak perfectly to exactly what you just described in terms of not abandoning her comedic timing or some of those comedic moments and those instincts but at the same time being able to just turn it on a dime and play that pathos as well it really does come through in that scene that i'm going to highlight but also many scenes in enough said my number one surprise of 2013 three surprises in a row here try to end on a positive note though i suppose you could bring a little negativity to it josh and it does bring us full circle from the start of our list because we saw this movie the movie is pacific rim just before we saw Elysium. And I wrote on Letterboxd about Elysium, I can't believe the robots versus monsters movie was significantly less dumb than this. So obviously, had a positive reaction to Pacific Rim. You can hear us have a fight about it on episode 453, though a lot tamer than one of the kaiju versus Jaeger battles you see in the movie Pacific Rim. But it was a film for me that completely opposite experience you had Josh in terms of the pure visual spectacle hard to beat I think gravity ended up topping that in terms of the spectacle but I do feel like overall it was a film that was reflective of someone like del Toro with a unique artistic sensibility and it was the movie where I felt for the first time like I can't believe I didn't see this in 3D I felt that actually would have augmented the experience, enhanced the experience that I should have gone for the full visual experience that Guillermo del Toro was trying to give us. And the other thing that stood out to me, Josh, and I know this didn't really register with you or matter to you. Maybe you were just so lost in the mind numbing dumbness of the movie is i loved that it's a film that unlike most dumb action movies actually did consider the human cost that was something i was aware of in every big action scene of this film that the people in it are not just little dots to be squashed or run over and killed and forgotten about he really does have a strategy in how he plays with those scenes and how he plays with the human characters in those scenes so i thought that was refreshing and The performances largely worked for me, even though I know they didn't work for you and a lot of other people. That was definitely a surprise. I went into Pacific Rim with really no expectations, but I didn't expect to come out raving about it, and I did. You did. And that shocked me. It
2: still shocks me, actually. Not because the film's that bad. I wouldn't I wouldn't accuse it of dumbness at all for me. And I considered it for a disappointment for this list because it was a case of missed opportunity. It was Del Toro's involvement. And I just didn't see enough of those touches. And uh, the characters, even though it was mindful of the human cost of a lot of what was going on, the humans we spent a lot of time with. Was hard to care for them at all. You wouldn't mind if they were
1: squashed. Yeah, I don't want to go that over. far. <laughs> 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 Too much of a humanist for that, Josh. Those are our top five surprises and disappointments of 2013. Do you have any honorable mentions beyond Pacific Rim? That was the only one I had down. So. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yep. A couple ones I'll mention. I just have four here. A surprise for me. I'll go back to one of my golden brick regrets. Drinking Buddies was a surprise for me because I've seen two or three other Joe Swanberg films and have not really been much of a fan. And this is one I really recommend. He has another film out this year too called All the Light in the Sky. That it's out right yeah, now. Yeah, I think it is. Right? Well, I know I have a link to watch the film online, Josh, which I'll share with you because we have nothing but time here to watch some of these movies at the end of the year. But heard a little bit of buzz about it. I know some people like it even more than Drinking Buddies. So Swanberg with a very good year. It seems so far that was a surprise to the wonder it was a disappointment for me from Terrence Malick because I have high expectations for every Terrence Malick film maybe muted a little bit just because of the lackluster buzz coming out of can I think it was and some of the other festivals disappointments we also mentioned old boy and. I probably shouldn't even say it because it's just not fair, but I had as my number one most anticipated film of the year, not The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, but The Grandmaster. Yep. From Wong Kar Wai, uh, starring Tony Leung. And it's a movie I liked, but didn't love nearly as much as I thought I would. It probably didn't meet expectations. It just I didn't would quite meet that expectations. Yeah. That's what it was. So a little bit of a disappointment, but we also acknowledged during the review that it's one of those films that even if you didn't know 25 minutes have been cut out of it, it's there. It's there for me on the screen. You feel how carved up it seems and how there are elements missing that would really amplify that film and the characters and their stories. And I would love to see that full cut of the movie, which is out there, but just not apparently here in the States. So kind of a barely made the honorable mentions list, but the Grandmaster, a little bit of a disappointment. We look forward to hearing your picks for surprises and disappointments of the year actually have a couple I want to throw in real quick here Josh from Twitter in session film says rush the Ron Howard film easily my biggest surprise of the year had zero expectations for it disappointment was man of steel Kim says the bling ring from Sofia Coppola was a big disappointment and Ben Stevens says I was very surprised by how much I enjoyed Francis Ha felt sure it would irk me and the act of killing blew me away. So a couple listener picks there. We want to hear from more. You email us your surprises and disappointments at feedback at filmspotting.net.
2: You can also leave us a voicemail 312 or find us on Twitter at filmspotting
1: and at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Out in limited release. In Chicago this weekend, Go For Sisters, the latest film from John Sayles, a filmmaker I love. It's about estranged friends who reunite to find a woman's lost son on the Mexican border. White Reindeer, we go to our go-to critic, Callum Marsh, who I think I'm going to get to hang out with in Toronto this weekend. He calls it the first great film of the post-Color Wheel age. Well, it's about time. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's been all of a year. <laughs> it's taken so long. Out in wide release, The Hobbit, The Desolation of smog <laughs> he said smog i did and that's the the most fun i'll have with that movie i'm afraid saving mr banks the disney film about the disney adaptation of pl travers mary poppins starring tom hanks as walt disney and emma thompson as travers and now i feel just horrible because there i am ripping on the desolation of smog again haven't seen it and i know we have one of our longtime listeners associated with that film and he's just cringing as i rip on can it. can i again. try to
2: make up for it yeah. by
1: saying it's pretty good is it really but I liked thought, it. You thought The Hobbit was pretty good. Yeah, well, Is it better? Uh, no, it's a,
2: it works on the same level, I would say. Great. Yes. <laughs> and I don't week. think you should see
1: it at all. Okay. I don't even want to hear your impressions of it. <laughs> Ouch. Next week on the show, The Desolation of smog will not make my top 10 films of the year, but we're going to share them, at least part one. You'll hear our 10 through 6 picks with our friends, Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune and Scott Tobias from The Dissolve we always look forward to it. I don't look forward to having to prepare for the show. It's your, my least favorite show to prepare for. you your less locked down? And... I do love recording it. What are you talking about? <laughs> we have like three <laughs> ballots due over the next three days. And no, I have really no concept of what my top 10 is. So All right. it's going to be a long, long weekend. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe DeSoe and Sam Van
2: Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our featured music this week is from Asthma Boy. You can find out more at asthmaboymusic.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson.
1: And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.
0: This conversation can serve no purpose
1: anymore. Goodbye.